Hi all, David here. This month's conversation with Dan Kennedy revolves a lot around the current economy, the dynamics and the volatility, and most importantly, what it means for you and I as we look forward in our planning and our overarching goals, maintaining viability and sustainability. The question I start off with in my discussion with Dan is, this time, is it different or not? This time in our history, in the economics, the political arena, are we in a different situation than we've been in before with potential recessions and corrections, or is there a difference this time? I'll let you dig in and hear our discussion about that. We are right now in the middle to latter part of August of 2022. We have had recent discussions, or I would say redefinitions of what a recession is defined as uh, the current administration pushing back and wanting to change that definition. This is not uncommon at all in the world that we live in today. We're finding more and more that those that want to tell us how to live, what we should expect in the future, they're redefining everything. And this really goes back to what is happening in our schools today with the younger generations is the indoctrination by media and other outlets of mainstream media is really overriding what I believe is the truth. And we have to be able to define what that really is in our own terms. Dan and I talked about who is being affected most in a recession or correction and when that will happen. Different types of consumers out there to which we are definitely in a need to be able to continue to buy our products, buy our services. There are two different spectrums. We have people that are driven by panic versus people driven by denial, and neither one is good. People that are panic-driven tend to make very knee-jerk decisions and activities, and those that are in denial typically don't do anything. They just stay in a place of stagnation and make no changes at all. Rational people, on the other hand, are out there on the front navigating a definitive path. It may not be perfect. It may need to be changed, modified, and iterated from time to time, but motion forward in some fashion that takes us from where we are today to where we think we need to be as far as being in higher ground, better positioning is the key. You have yourself to look toward and you know you have invested in yourself. You continue to remain dynamic in terms of the information you take in and decisions you make. You have to do that for your personal life. You have to do that for your business and your investment portfolio. But who pays you for your advice, for your services, for your products is also a key. Who are those people and how will they be affected by a correction or recession? If they're affected to a great degree and you have a large dependency on a certain sector of the population, then your own sustainability could be at risk. We have to continue to look at the fundamentals and determine what sectors, what population groups have the most sustainability and who will keep us and what we do on the essential list versus the non-essential list. In prepping for a recession or correction, we have to be very, very astute regarding our business revenues and expenses. Those are the two areas that we can have some control. We can look to generating higher revenues, but in terms of overhead, we have to remain in a profitable mode. Profitability, cash flow is the key. On the expense side, yes, there's probably a lot of, or a considerable amount of bloat in most businesses today. A lot of that has been caused by the inflationary 
forces of the last two years of COVID and the great labor resignation issues, the higher costs that we've faced across the board. But we still have to look at what is the real ROI, the real return on investment of our labor force, our staff, our teams. Are we getting the biggest bang for the buck? Oftentimes we try to cut corners there and hire at a lower scale, but we in turn many times cause ourselves to have a greater overhead because of the turnover, the lack of focus, lack of motivation. I think today is a time when we have to really look at the quality of the people that we surround ourselves with, and that includes our teams, most definitely, and be willing to invest more than we have in the past, but also expect a greater return on that investment. Looking at what you do in terms of the businesses, services, or products you provide, who is your customer? Who is your most profitable customer? And thinking about focusing more in that segment than trying to be all things to all people. What product or what service is the most profitable and which are the least profitable? Which could you eliminate and reduce that overhead cost? Really looking not so much to add more things to your plate, but who or what could you potentially eliminate and become stronger as a result? And a lot of this comes down to metrics, numbers, or what Dan calls money math. The numbers that your CPA or your accountant don't give you. They give you the P&Ls, they give you a balance sheet, but really helping you forecast what your real run rate is and where your profitability is, that really comes from someone who has the ability to provide you the numbers that allow you to drive your business with better decision-making. That's the dashboard that every owner needs, not a P&L, not how much is left in the bank at the end of the month, but real numbers that let you look at leading and lagging indicators that give you so much insight. If you don't have that on your team, ask us in Freedom Founders and we'll be glad to give you some advice or some help with where you could find those insights. Another common theme that Dan over and over brings to the table is doing things simultaneously versus sequentially. The fact that there will always be things that try to grab our attention out of the gate. I call it the tyranny of the urgent. The things that appear to be in front of us every day, every week, that keep us busy, make us feel like we're getting things done, but we're actually just being reactionary and we're not really moving the needle towards more medium and long-term goals. Very important to always make room for the longer term, the long game. It's easy to procrastinate the activities, the decision-making, the projects, the pivots that actually move the needle for us in terms of our wealth, our business profitability, in terms of our time freedom. It's easy to procrastinate things that will take us closer there because we think, well, there'll be a time when I can get to that. When I get this done, that done, when I get to here, then I'll do that. Wrong approach. You need to be working on these different levels of goals at the same time and not be pushing the most important things off to some distant future. We also discussed the problem that so many people have who are good at getting money, that is high income, trading time for dollars, but accepting really little or no control over their investment portfolio. That's the future, the future bank. You can be good at getting money, making money, but how good are you in managing it after you get it? What happens to that money after you get it? That's really a key inflection point that the vast majority of high income achievers do not get. We finished our discussion with an area that I think will have a lot of meaning to many of you, and that is what is the current ROI, return on investment, on a college or postgraduate degree today. 
it's a conversation that I would like to continue in our Freedom Founders community because I think it is so relevant to our younger generation, their future, and how they will continue to go forward in a very uncertain economy and marketplace. Enjoy this month's conversation. Well, Dan, we are definitely in interesting times today as we have been in the last several years. And there's an old saying that we hear quoted quite often, and that is, this time is different. And I think that goes two ways. I think some people will say, well, this time is different because the markets are different and the Fed can keep saving the day. And then I think on the other side, I would say this time could be different because what we've seen in the past with recessions, downturns, corrections, I think we've got potentially more headwinds against us right now. So you can take either side of this, but what I see overall right now, Dan, and we're talking right now in the middle of August of 2022, is that there seems to be a lot of complacency amongst, I think, business owners, investors of all sides. We've seen certainly a relatively significant correction in the market from the first of this year till about the middle of June, and then we've seen this bounce back, which is not uncommon in recessions. But it seems to me this time the bounce back is letting people really kind of take their eye off the ball. And again, there's this feeling that it's all going to be good again because the Federal Reserve seems to always come to the rescue. They did during COVID in the spring of 2020 when we had the significant drop and the Fed came to the rescue and they expand credit and print money and throw helicopter money everywhere. And everybody says, well, it's okay. They're going to do it again this time. Do you have that sort of sense right now? Well, I have. Today, Twitter officially announced that they were beginning to erase tweets that talked about recession because it was misinformation. And a new term is starting to be used called recession mongers. So this is, I guess, the convenient categorization of everybody who knows history and could do math, which is sort of like being an election denier. Now you're a recession monger. What both have in common is they can count. So, yeah, look, I think there is a complacency and a coerced complacency that there is an attempt to sell everybody on the idea that what they are experiencing and what they are seeing and facts they are hearing if they are paying attention to them are not real. It is literally the old joke from the Walter Matthau movie of the wife coming in and catching him in bed with the girlfriend and him hustling her up and getting her dressed. And the entire time he's saying to his wife, are you going to believe your lying eyes or are you going to believe me? And <laughs> the punchline of the joke is eventually he gets a girlfriend out of the room and after about 15 more minutes, He has the wife convinced that she didn't see what she saw. Right. So this is going on. And so I would call it coerced complacency. And what is happening is a non-sector recession, whereas the most recent ones have been sector-specific. you got to go back a ways to have all sectors, no place to hide. So I think that helps people be complacent because they have a sense that it's not, look, it's at the supermarket, but it's not in my sector of business. And I just think it's people that don't really understand the alarm bells. As with all recessions, the middle gets slaughtered first, 
and the most recent indicators are a lot of retail companies had their earnings reports last week and this week. And the middle segment retailers, Target, Kohl's, et cetera, are all bleeding. Right. And a bunch of their purchases, spend, is moving down to Walmart. Yes. And to the dollar stores. Yes. Now, at the top, they don't move down then to Kohl's. So if you're going to buy a Fendi bag, you're not going to downgrade to go to pennies. You're either going to buy it or you're not going to buy it. You're going to wait. And at the bottom, there's no place to go. So the bottom always stays at the bottom. But the middle is what gets murdered with move downs. The mid-range restaurant, the Olive Garden, the Red Lobster, the Applebee's, the Chili's, they're the ones that show it. So the Olive Garden customer moves down to ordering a pizza. This is in full visibility in front of anybody that cares to look. And it speaks to what we're going to experience in the coming months. There's a spectrum of behavior, right? Sort of at one end of the spectrum is just outright denial. And at the other end of the spectrum is panic. And somewhere in between, rational and successful people try to navigate, as it is with everything, right? We know that being out and about in big cities factually is a different matter than it was three years ago, certainly than five years ago. So you can react to that at the panic end of the spectrum where you lock yourself up and don't go anywhere. Or you can be in the denial end of the spectrum where neither the statistical facts or the news reports bother you. That's just Fox hysteria, and I'm going to go walk around Times Square if I feel like it. And somewhere in between, the rational and successful person navigates a path. Complacency on that spectrum is closer to denial. Yes, obviously, than it is to panic, and it's too close to denial. So really now even somewhere in between there is where rational and successful people navigate their path. But to pretend that things aren't happening and that a number of those things present challenges is nutty. It's insane. Yeah, yeah, well, as you said, either end of the spectrum is dangerous. Those who go to panic and fear can make some very abrupt and malaligned decisions based not on data, but just, again, on emotions. And then those on the complacent and denial side, head in the sand, are the ones who just get rolled over in due time because they made no plans. We're just hoping, again, this time it would pass. And what he said about a lot of people are in that position, I think, where they're saying, well, it's not affecting me personally, maybe right now yet, or it's not affecting my business sector or maybe my investment sector. Well, it hasn't happened yet, I think, would be the thing that people don't understand. And as you said, there's already the headwinds in the signs and the data with the, the retailers that you mentioned where there are issues with the consumers. And household debt is way up right now. And I think that's an overflow from what people received during the COVID helicopter money stimulus where people were overloaded with money. They couldn't spend it like they were used to. And they got used to a different lifestyle, got used to, frankly, many people not going to work, not reentering the labor force and playing that game. And now that the money's not flowing to them like it was freely before from the government is now they're tapping the debt side. 
the upcoming round of money from the government, there obviously is going to be another half trillion dollars of it, maybe more. But it is clearly going to be more pointed and discriminatory than the last round was. So it's not going to have the same tide that lifts all boats effect. I saw a study yesterday of the subsidies available in the new bill that will flow through the energy department to people buying solar panels. And they vary by income level, size of house, zip code, et cetera, all the way from $12,000 to $81. So it's not like everybody's going to get 12 Gs. No, Uh, totally different. And so... The bailout you mentioned, sort of the pouring of fake water into the depleted reservoir, is not going to be what the last two of those were. I just think there's no denying the headwinds and the challenges that, to your point about new and not new, that have historical precedents that are reasonably predictable are here and are fast approaching. And one way or another, to the point you just made, they are going to reach everybody. Yeah. Because if they don't reach you directly, they reach whoever it is that you are intertangled with. Exactly. So, no, Joe the orthodontist, his income may be such that he hasn't really yet adjusted any behavior based on the prices at the grocery store. So Mary comes home and says, you can't even believe what it costs for these stakes. And Joe says, yeah, there's inflation. And that's the end of the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, Joe's patients, <laughs> even affluent patients, they're having a different conversation. That's right. And it ain't going to be long before it shows up in case acceptance percentages, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So anybody that thinks they're going to sail past this, that's not in the car. Yeah, and I think, too, Dan, that the headwinds that we're facing today, the government, uh, the Federal Reserve, in trying to work their magic, we haven't had anything close to this level of inflation in over 40 years since going back to the 70s. We've talked about this before, but I think this is where people get confused because the Fed's raised the funds rate up to, what, two and a quarter now since practically zero back in March. And so, you know, on a relative basis, that's a pretty significant raise. But when you've got inflation running at 8 9%, that's not even close to what I would anticipate the Fed's going to have to do. And so people are saying, well, gosh, you know, inflation, we peaked out, and we're, in, we're now on the downside. We had a drop from the 9.1 down to whatever, 8.5. And so people are saying, oh, good, it's working, it's working. And, in fact, some people say, well, I think the Fed's even going to pivot back and maybe September or in this fall. They'll pull back quite a bit, and we're going to get this soft landing. And I think that that's probably a very difficult thing to pull off. Yeah, I'm not a fearmonger or a pessimist. I'm just a realist in looking at what's going on here. I personally don't think the Fed's going to be able to really tame inflation down to the level of their historic desire, which is around 2%. I think that horses out of the barn, and if they even get it close to maybe 4 or 5%, they're going to call it a day and say, hey, we won the war. Because, again, it's all relative to the people. When they say well, you don't. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But you have another kind of weird situation going on that did not occur with past recessions is you actually have the Fed operating in direct conflict with the administration 
at the same time against the same issue. When Volcker raised the rates all at one time through the roof and addressed sky-high inflation with a triggered recession, the White House at the same time did massive across-the-board tax cuts. And right now, you have really everything that is being done. But if you just take the Inflation Reduction Act and you look at it and its contents, everything in it is inflationary, not deflationary. Very much, yes. Exactly. So at the same time, you have poor Powell over here trying to hurt demand with rising interest rates, some not too much, but enough to try and bring down inflation by demand destruction. You have the White House pouring monetary fire on demand. So that's sort of a new and different dynamic. But you're right in that, first of all, nothing has ever always has gone back down to where it was when one of these cycles started. Right. Because it's been so long since people have had to manage something like high interest rates, their reactions to even tiny bumps are seismic. Yes. So, again, right now in the news, last week, this week, there's a big jump up in people backing out of real estate purchases. Correct, yes. Because literally from the time that they said, I'll buy this house for $400,000, and the time they're closing, the monthly payment has gone up by a couple hundred bucks. Right. And they were stretching to make it before that. And they go, we can't do this. You and I come from a time where you paid 15% interest on a mortgage, and so we look at it went up by a point and a half, and we like laugh. Right. Because exactly. no offense intended, but that's because we're old. You got two entire generations of home buyers who ain't never seen that. They have not seen their minimum payment on their credit cards go up with every statement, statement after statement, and then when your inflation is outpacing your wage increases by roughly four points, you add those two things together and you got trouble that can't be ignored and people's reaction to it is not good. One man's onion is another man's apple. So an increase in people backing out of real estate deals helps support the Fitch forecast of a 15% drop in the next three to six months in prices. So what does that mean? It's a really juicy apple if you're in a position to buy bargains. Exactly. Well, it's an onion if right. you're in a position where you have to sell something in the next three to six months. Yeah. Or you're grossly over leveraged or you have some bad assets that now you've got to sell good assets to cover the bad assets, then it's an onion. That's right. And we try to put ourselves and continually adjust to realities to keep ourselves in positions where as much as possible, the news is a basket of apples, not a basket of onions. Yep, exactly right. That has to do with one's positioning. And I think, I think Dan, that right now for those that have active businesses, and I think you and I would agree that being in some kind of a business is probably the best way to and probably by far the best way to offset 
the ravages of inflation because when you're on the backside of an active income career of any kind, whether you're a W-2 wage employee or the owner of a professional practice or other business, at least you, if you have the price flexibility or elasticity to raise prices, now not all have that. I think in our industry, we have insurance that is putting a lid on those that have succumbed to that arena. But notwithstanding that, having a business that allows one to raise prices can be one way to do it. But looking at one's business, that again is where the issues come up and with uh, the person with their head in the sand or not a clue as to what's really coming. Uh, but those who want to portend and be prepared for that, the labor issues, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but the labor issues we have and with those who have expanded and increased capacity, utilizing low interest rates when times have been good, or maybe even using some of the PPP or idle loan money that was was handed out hand over fist, and some people have used that um, perhaps in the wrong direction, and now we're sitting on much oversized businesses, and I'm speaking now kind of to our troop, being uh, dentists and orthodontists and those in the healthcare field, maybe looking at some stronger headwinds, certainly the great resignation and the staff turnover and really the, the wokeism in that the generation of the staff that are being hired today is a big, big problem. What advice would you give to those that are sitting in that position right now that are treading water, and if they don't make some moves to one direction or the other, that being trying to get more out of fewer and less, higher profitability activities and clients, what's the danger on the other side? There's really only two things you can do when you own a business or a practice. And the good news is, to your point, that you do have them available to you to do where John Smith, who's getting a W-2 paycheck, does not. You can increase profitable revenues or you can decrease expenses. And on the labor side, there is no doubt that casual bloating has occurred. In big corporations where it is already being seen addressed with layoffs, an underreported trend, by the way, and in small businesses, and I've told this story before, but when Lee Iacocca came into Chrysler, the first time it was on the edge of bankruptcy, and he rescued it, in part with a government loan, but Chrysler did repay every penny under Iacocca. He tells a story about the thing was bleeding money, right? Yeah. So he had to spend half his time trying to figure out how to increase profitable revenues, and half his time how do we cut expenses? And we need to cut them with an ax to start with, not surgically. And he said, it's a real bitch to try and cut any of the union labor. So I got to look at the white collar labor, the salaried labor. He said, so I put a big chalkboard up in my office and I called one executive in after the other and handed him a piece of chalk and said, draw me a diagram that makes me understand how what you do here today sells a car. And anybody who couldn't do that, he laid them off and figured if it turns out one of these people was actually essential, I'll go back and get them. That is actually a truth, is in that every job and every person in a job has to be measured, has to be made accountable for return on investment. And if you can't figure out what the return on investment multiple is, then you either can simply get rid of them or you need to remake the job or you need to change the person in it. 
And so when money's running uphill and the amount of financial management that small business owner or practice owner is doing is, hey, there's more money in the checkbook at the end of the month than there was at the beginning of the month. We're good to go. And that was working okay. That's not going to work now. And so the typical small law practice, financial advisor practice, dental practice, chiropractic practice is probably overstaffed in an ROI assessment by 25%. That's unaffordable today and tomorrow and next month and next quarter and next year. So that's got to be looked at. And the other thing I would say is that, and I just had this conversation with a client today, he's finally bought into it, but it took him a little while is I don't think in most environments that it is particularly smart to hire Gen X. That's an unfair broad brush, I realize. People also tell me that there are gentle, loving, never violent pit bulls that make great pets. But <laughs> I, and I'm sure that's true. But I think if you play the statistical odds, better you go get a poodle. And I just, so this client is, half of the clientele is young. So it's a parent student kind of environment. They have tended to hire young millennial and Gen X. And the problems are growing by the day, which makes it harder and harder and harder to get return on investment from that person and the job they are in. And so he has finally bit the bullet and is concentrating on finding 50 and up. Yes. And I just bluntly think that that's the smarter thing to do. Have you heard about the, it started August 1, the surround your boss month? I have not. Okay. So this deal started in South Carolina with a Starbucks and it has apparently gone viral since I don't look at social media. I'm giving this to you secondhand. But there is an encouraged movement that the workers should physically surround the manager or the owner in a tight circle so the person can't move anywhere and yell their demands at him or her. Mm -hmm. And it made the news in South Carolina because the Starbucks manager who was accosted in this manner called the cops and literally had the cops separate her from her circle of employees. But this speaks to the attitude that you face depending on who you hire and how you hire them. But there's no doubt there's bloat. At the big corporate level, it happened in the human resources area. These departments got really big and really powerful. They are now getting shrunk. It comes down to people who sell the things and people who make the things that get sold, they get to stay. Everybody else, we have questions about it. And so I think you have to look at a business from what are we doing that is least profitable, that is forcing us to have more overhead than we would otherwise need? What jobs do we have that are not in and of themselves particularly, they're not profit centers. So they need to be remade or eliminated et cetera, et cetera. And then on the revenue side, what kind of customer is 
most profitable, next most profitable, all the way down to least profitable, most price elastic, next most price elastic, least price elastic, because all this matters. It didn't necessarily matter in recent years. No, I think you're absolutely right. Talking to just so many dentists, and I do see it in some of the forums, and the stress that small business owners are undergoing, and yeah, it is it is real stress. It's legitimate stress. I mean, we've talked about the war on small business. It, it is definitely in effect. This is one side of it is Gen Z and the millennial woke attitudes and indoctrination that, that they bring into place. And I think the problem that our tribe has in general, Dan, is just people get used to doing things more the way it's always been done. Well, you need to have a practice this size with X number of chairs and capacity. And to do so, we've got to have the volume. So we take the insurance plans and all these things just add friction and risk, liability, overhead, stress. And if people would just look at the other side and say, as you point out, go hire the more mature people. Yes, you're probably going to pay them a little, little bit more, but my goodness, your profitability, the environment you'll have, the in this case, the patients you're going to attract, the fact that you can do without all the insurance companies, you can reduce your hours. You don't have to be in the, and have a practice that's open five or six days a week trying to compete with the clinics out there. And I think it's trying to go against Walmart. And we're not in a Walmart sector here, at least not the people we deal with. It's changed their mindset. It's so hard to, to do, but I think right now is the most important time for them to do that. And the other piece that we didn't really talk about is, is the fact that very few of them really understand their numbers. So they can evaluate what the ROI is or the negative ROI on either activities or patients or staff or do you buy this technology just because the manufacturer said it. And there's a whole list of things that we can talk about here, but I think your point's well said. It's time right now to figure out what that model is going to be going forward and start making moves in that direction. Yeah, I talk about this as uh, the term I use is money math. It's the math your accountant or CPA will never talk to you about because they don't actually understand it. And so there's money math in the advertising and marketing category, cost per lead, cost per appointment, cost per sale, initial transaction value, lifetime, that kind of stuff. There's money math in the management side of the business. And in every business, it's a little different, but more nuanced than Epic. And there's a chapter about it in my Ruthless Management book. You better understand it because nobody else is going to understand it. Right. And the other point I would make, again, that I kind of chewed on a client about earlier today, is that you always need to be executing long-term, medium, short-term simultaneously. Yes. Not sequentially. Easier said than done, but it's a critically important principle. And so you cannot let the fire in the wastebasket dominate you for the entire day. It may have to be locked in a room and left there to burn while you devote a predetermined hour every day to working on a different objective. So now specific to wealth in general and to retirement wealth, the temptation in a sudden rise of economic challenges is to set it aside and say, I got this fire over here that I got to attend to. And I'll get back to that after I put the fire out. Yes. This macroeconomic fire, I don't care 
what you do, it's not going out this month. <laughs> it's yeah. not going out this year. And this staffing fire is not going out this month. And it's not going out this year. So if you set aside your active work on wealth until these fires go out, I hope you're young. Yeah. I learned first from psychocybernetics, but then from some management guys that were the great turnaround pros of the 80s. Al Dunlap is one of them because I had a corporate turnaround on my hands myself in the 80s. And the convergence of psychocybe and what these management guys described they had to do, and Iacocca verified that he had to do is you have to be able to compartmentalize so that you devote some calendar time, committed time to long-term, some committed time to medium-term, and some committed time to short-term, which would include the fire in the wastebasket, like every day. Henry Kissinger had this line late in the Nixon administration. Apparently, one day he actually put it out as a memo that there can be no more crises this week. I'm fully booked. <laughs> right. Yep. And I think people have to be very careful about this because it is very easy to drop this simultaneous approach when certain stressors and pressure and circumstances occur. It's a bad idea to do so. Yeah. Well, those stresses and pressures, they're always going to be there. And you're right. And if you think you're going to get to a point where you're going to solve all those or put all the fires out, and then you can start to take the next steps towards building that future bank, that day will not come. And I think then the other side of kind of the complacency about call it retirement planning, future bank equity, is there's a false sense of security that people have when they think they have created a solid plan. And, and that's what you know I push back very hard on, and, and you do as well. It's the abdication of that your future bank, your future financial orchestration by just turning it over to Wall Street money managers, index funds, mutual funds, ETFs, 401ks, where you think just because you have a discipline, and discipline's number one, but beyond that, not having any control whatsoever over where those funds are going. So I won't go so far as to say nobody should ever use any of those vehicles. But what I will say is that those things are being aggressively sold to you. Real estate investing is not being as aggressively sold. And that's suggestive in and of itself. But more importantly is your overarching point. Think of really the silliness of this plan, which is you master a clinical or technical skill. And in most cases, you probably less master the business of monetizing that skill, but you do to some extent, and you work your ass off with that in order to extract some money that you then hand over to somebody or somebody's to do things with it that you don't know about, that you don't understand, that you aren't being collaborative about, that you don't have a voice in. This is just, if you stop to think about it, it's nuts, right? It um, is nuts, and I, it's hard for people not to think that way because that's the default mechanism. That's what they've been sold on, and they're sold also on the fact that, well, you doctor, you business owner, you don't have the time, expertise. It'd take you way too long, too dangerous out there. You do what you do, 
focus on that and we'll take care of the rest. It is a hard construct. I started early, very early in my life before I even had any time value chair size, so to speak. That was a benefit to me, maybe lucky, maybe opportunistic. But I make the play that you can't be all passive about your financial future. Now, you may not want to be active. Well, I get that. You may not want to go out or should you not even go out and try to, in this case, in alternative investments, find your own properties, rehab them, do the tenants. I, I totally am not a fan of that for people that have a higher time value. But there's got to be some place in between where you take at least a semi-active approach. Whether you like the stock market or not, I don't care. But to understand where those funds are going and where do you potentially depending on who you are, where you might exert the most control, or maybe I should say better to mitigate downside risk. I had a a doc the other day who said, well, David, it's just known that in a a generation or two, there's going to be at least two or three down cycles where the market is going to lose 40, 50%. You just have to understand that's the case. Well, you may need to understand that's the case, but can you do something about it? And his point was, well, no, that's just part of it. And I thought, well, that's that's your mindset. That's the way you've developed a thought process about it. See, that's like somebody who, and I've never understood it, but they live below sea level by New Orleans. Yeah. Every X number of years, like clockwork, the place floods. Right. Now, I think I understand really poor people who don't leave, but I don't understand somebody who rebuilds their half-million-dollar house below sea level or right where wildfires come every three years. And yet you could say, well, I'm in the hurricane zone, so every few years there's going to be a hurricane turn my place into toothpicks. Well, just because there's going to be a hurricane every three years doesn't mean you need to sit there, right. you idiot. I was right around 40 years old when I consulted with this guy known in my little world, and a finance business guy. I was what the financial professionals call, I didn't know the term at the time, but call high income underinvested, what the old Texans call all hat, no cattle. And he said, do you know why you make so much money and I've just shown to you that you're broke? I said, I don't think so. And he said, because you're not as good at what happens to your money after you get it as you are at getting it. And you you need a 50-50 balance of knowledge about that. And then he said, even if you have to reduce the amount of energy you are putting in to being good at getting it a little, to gain some time to get smarter about what happens to it after you get it, you ought to do that. Yes. I mean, I was floored, right? Because when I stopped to think about it, I was weighted like 99% to 1% on the getting it side. Yep. In fact, I was already damn good at getting it, but I sure was not very knowledgeable about what happened to it after I got it. And look, there's a difference between delegating the painting of the house and delegating the decision-making about the house to buy. And no, you don't, depending on your chair side value, and I've had high hourly value, billable hours value my entire life, you don't have to go find a house to buy. But you still ought not be letting somebody else just pick it either. Exactly. 
The overwhelming majority of the people, by the way, that have 401ks, they don't even know what's in them. Well, that's right. They have no, no idea. They, they have not a clue. No, they just um, statement wondered what happened that month. And in many cases, people that have ETFs don't even know what's in them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, like, Apple's in, like, all of them. So, if you're sloppy about this, you get way overweighted in Apple, and you don't even know it. That's right. Because you don't even know what's in the ETF. Oh, it's a technology, rising income, emerging markets ETF. Shit, that sounds great. Exactly. Exactly. And then you look, and a third of it's Apple and Amazon. <laughs> but I'm paying three management fees for the ETF to go buy Apple for me. Exactly. Uh, a monkey throwing feces could pick Apple. <laughs> That's right. Hey, Dan, with a few minutes we have left, I would like to have you weigh in on something that I think has also become an obligation, but also at the same time a significant financial liability for a lot of hardworking professionals who want the best for their kids. Well, we all want the best for our kids, but what is the best for our kids? Is that paying their way through four years of college, graduate school, or professional school so they don't have any debt? You and I, I think we traded faxes the last week or so. We were both reading the, the same book at the same time, Charlie Kirk's book on uh, the college scam. It's a great book. It's a great book. I, yeah, I want to bring that up because I'd like our folks to pick it up and read it. But this guilt-ridden obligation of I need to make it easier for my kids. Well, number one, you and I don't believe that at all. But secondly, can, let's, can we just talk a little bit about some of the points that Charlie makes in regards to what I think most of us know, but I think a lot of people just try to dismiss it, is the indoctrination, the Marxism, and what kind of critical thinking, free thinking is coming out of the institutions today. It's not, it's, it's, except for a few exceptions, and we know where those are. But overall, what would you yeah. tell people? How would you handle one of your kids who was maybe aspiring and doing pretty darn well in school and could go on to whatever he or she wanted to, but how would you handle it today? I don't have that problem with kids, but I have that issue with grandkids, and I have very little control. So I feel everybody's pain. And in the interest of full disclosure, I do a lot of marketing consulting for a college, a high point university. Having said those things, first of all, I think you're right. I think most parents have no earthly idea the extent to which the majority of universities have become anti-American, socialist, woke indoctrination camps. About the first time a lot of parents realize it is after a year when the kid comes home for Thanksgiving and speaks. So parents started to realize this about K through 12 because they were forced to. Yes. And they were locked in their houses with their kids, taking school on Zoom. And Mm -hmm. they like overheard what was going on and they went, what the hell is this? Right. Yeah. Well, I promise you, if you zoomed in on a week of your college student at college, you would have the same reaction times 10. And there's examples in Charlie's book to that effect. This is not new. It's just been getting, pardon the pun, progressively worse, and it's really accelerated. So one is, I think you have to do your best to influence the decision-making about where they go in very frank conversations about this, particularly if you have raised them in a values-based home. Then you need to have a conversation about what the conflict is in the value that they are going to be coerced in 
case is compelled to espouse, and that makes it very difficult not to actually accept them. And you've got to try and steer to the least worst (laughs) of the choices. And if you are writing a check, you get a say-so. Secondly, I think that college is not a requisite for everybody to do well in life. Exactly. Uh, That idea, so real estate investors will be familiar if they're long-term investors, with just how bad an idea everybody should own a home and is entitled to own a home is. That idea, born of the Clinton administration, caused the 2008 meltdown. And the idea that you can't get ahead and you will be dumb and broke your whole life if you don't go to college started to take root right around the time I graduated from high school. And trade schools started to be moved out and the guidance counselors started to drive everybody to college. And this has gotten more and more and more so over time to the point that it's now kind of a a educational academic religion. Yeah. That's a bad idea. And I'm not a big fan of people heading off to college who have no earthly idea what they want to do, why they are going. Yeah. So nothing wrong with a gap year or maybe go intern or apprentice for a real entrepreneurial business owner, right? I mean, just see what's out there. Yeah. Yep. And third, then I think you have to deliberately counter-influence to whatever extent that you can. So very simply, for example, we have six grandkids. We have financial contribution available to any of the six who want it. However, it has strings. And one of those is my assigned reading list and written book reports every month throughout every year. And as you might imagine, none of my recommended reading list would probably match the recommended reading list at Stanford. Yep, I would imagine so, yep. So I am forcing at least a awareness that, hey, there's other viewpoints out there, like Ayn Rand, (laughs) et cetera. And I'm happy to report that in one case, it's produced some fairly productive back-and-forth long correspondence. I'm getting my money's worth, and I'm having some influence. So I think you have to recognize, as you do with K-12 right now, although I don't have to deal with it, that if you care about the end product, your job does not end with buying them a microwave and a futon and dropping them off at campus. Those days are over. You now have a task, and in many cases a difficult one, of deliberately and continually introducing counter-programming to the programming that is occurring that is not education. Otherwise, you're not going to like the product that everybody is paid for. The last thing I would say is, looping back to your point, is... The parents and grandparents who are allowing no skin in the game are making a horrible mistake. And I'm amazed in many cases when I see it, hear it from clients, because that's not how they got where they are. Exactly. They had skin in the game every step of the way. 
And so this idea that now, A, we don't want them to have any debt. Well, why? Why? Right? No, we don't want them to owe a quarter of a million dollars. But the actual average college debt that they're all screaming about, I think, is like 39000 bucks. So it's about the price of a car. Like AOC, who's one of the loudest screamers about this, <laughs> because she has college debt. She only owes $17,000. <laughs> she makes $174,000 a year, and she owns a Tesla. Who's kidding who here? Right? So the idea that, oh, they shouldn't graduate with any debt, why? I started a business. I had to go into debt. I maxed every credit card known to man in the early days of financing my business at 26% interest. Why should you not have any debt? Secondly, they pay for all of it. Well, why? Where's the summer job money? Where's the, I'm proud to say, pleased to say, my grandkids, they work summer jobs, they make money, they squirrel away money, and they pay part of their freight, a significant part of their freight. Yeah. But I hear from, like, clients, they're paying 100% of the freight, and they never had that experience. I said, so, hey, dummy, cause and consequences. You're who you are and what you are, and develop the skills you have because of the causes. Now you want to eliminate the causes and somehow wind up with a result that's even better than you. That's right. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Not going to work. Not at all. So skin in the game. I agree 100%. And we have, and I know you're doing it at your events, which is laudatory, and everybody should take advantage of it who can. We have a somewhat unique advantage over many parents or grandparents is we have opportunities to give them exposure again, to a different world than they see at campus. Yes. So we have seminars. <laughs> we have events. We belong to mastermind groups. We go to conferences. And it is a very useful thing, I think, to get your preteen, your teen, and your college kid to attend some of this activity. Because me saying it to mine or you saying it to yours is not always as impactful as when they discover to their surprise 50 or 100 or 300 or 600 other people who say the same thing to them. Same thing. Yep. That social privilege is very, very, very strong. Yeah. So if they're around, I mean, look, if you drop them onto liberal la-la land planet and they spend 90% of their time there, and in some cases, even if they go on an internship, they're on an internship with some of their student peers yes. and maybe in a liberal corporate environment. It's impossible not to be affected by that, no matter what set of attitudes you started with. That's right. Counter-programming by a variety of means, you know, is important. We have opportunities to do that that a lot of other people don't. And your members have opportunities to do that, and they should take advantage of it. Fortunately, many are, and we've seen the realization by both parent and the younger child or adult child or even uh, down in the early teens how much it, it does 
effect and gives them a, a counterpoint to what they're getting in the formal education and wherever they hang out in the media today. So, well, Dan, as always, I appreciate your time. We appreciate your insights. Very, very grateful. And thank you. And we'll do this again in a few months. All right. Thanks, David. Thanks, Dan. Take care.